Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. To all my bed crimers, hi, how are you? I hope you're having a great weekend. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Let me just ask that after watching and or listening to the video, if you find you enjoyed it or learned something, do me a favor, smash the like button and consider subscribing. Now, let's dig in. If it wasn't already traumatizing enough, to be one of just two survivors in one of the most terrifying, shocking, and gruesome quadruple murders of all time, a crime in which four of your best mates lost their lives. Dylan Mortensen will also be facing down Brian Koberger and his defense team during the trial. Dylan had the heart-stopping experience of hearing scary noises and then cracking open her door to see a masked person in black clothing, likely splattered in red, walking toward her. Because she's an eyewitness, Dylan's testimony will be central to the trial. She also saw and heard those things and didn't dial 911 for hours and hours and hours. The defense is going to pummel her about that issue. Why didn't you dial 911 when you saw a stranger in the house after you'd heard Xana crying and the loud thump of what was likely her body falling to the floor? It's a mystery that so many of us want to understand. According to her stepmother, Dylan is suffering from survivor's guilt. Totally understandable. I'm sure survivor number two, Bethany Funk, is suffering from that as well. On the one hand, it's a miracle that they're alive. On the other, they feel guilty that they survived and their friends did not. Dylan's moved away from Moscow and is likely never to return aside from the trial. And per her father, she only engages in indoor activities these days. She's using online gaming to try and heal. Clearly, she doesn't want to be spotted by reporters, photographers, and true crime creators looking to score her photo and maybe a soundbite. We would all love to speak with Dylan and hear her answer as to why she didn't dial 911. I mean, she said previously that she was in a frozen shock state, which those in the know say is definitely possible. And unless we've been in that exact same situation, we can't know what it's like. But we've since been told by Kaylee Gonzalez's father that some of the grand jurors have disclosed that Dylan and Bethany were awake and texting each other as the crime unfolded. Were both of them in a frozen shock state? Two people failed to dial 911 until many, many, many hours later. Their decision not to call the police sooner has cost them. Both have been subjected to an onslaught of online hate, as well as speculation that they were maybe drunk or high or maybe in on the plot. And both Dylan and Bethany are going to have to defend themselves and their deceased friends when Koberger's lawyers try and argue that their off-campus abode was a party house where the inhabitants didn't know everyone who came inside and weren't even home when some of these parties were going on. Take a listen. No one's here, Dad. So everyone here is trespassing? Well, no one's here that's trespassing, but no one, no one that lives here is here right now. So where'd they go? 
They're just not here. I have no clue where they went. No clue. So you guys just throwing a party in, in, in their house at They were time. here at one point. They're not here right now. I just I they, just searched all the rooms. They left and went over to some other party, and everyone is about to I just searched go all over the to another like, party. Okay. Who does live here? What are their names? I am actually not sure. I live across the street. I just came over. I haven't drank a drop. Male? Female? Uh, I think it's mainly females. I think that's okay. like four. What sorority are they affiliated with? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, you do. I don't know if they're associated with the... I don't know. I guarantee you they're associated with the sorority. As many of them are living here, it's an off-campus sorority house. I've been a cop for 22 years here. I'm not stupid. Don't play dumb games with me. I'd rather deal with this as a noise complaint than getting a hold of the Greek council and the Greek board and all of that and misleading the students and playing all these stupid fucking games. You, all I want to do is deal with the noise complaints because I guarantee us, you there's a lot of underage drinking because they left their alcohol behind. Do you want us to try and get a name or a phone number Please, and if you could. call someone? We just I, need to I, talk I, to somebody who lives here because otherwise I have yeah. to be under the assumption you guys are unlawfully entered because no one who lives here is here. Okay. Right? We'll, we'll go. We'll so go I need there. to verify that there was a party here. We'll now everyone laughs. So thank you. Thanks, guys. I understand. I just... Letting you know this is how it's going to play out. I'm not going anywhere until I talk to somebody who actually does. Just know how this is going for us. That way we can get some sort of communication between us and them. No, 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 Right, can you hear me, Maddie? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Do you live at 1122 uh, Queen Street? Yes, I do. Okay. So, hey, the reason that we're here is that we received a noise complaint um, of live music, partying. Okay. Once we approached the, the house, uh, people started running away. Uh, dealt a bunch of alcohol behind. We're not even coming for alcohol. We're coming for the noise complaint. And then we sat here for approximately 10 minutes trying to knock on the door and I'm not going to play that entire video, but you get the idea. The defense will likely use this to try and explain away Koberger's DNA being on the K-bar sheath. The defense will probably show the jurors the multiple police body cam videos where we see officers knocking on the door at 1122 King Road due to noise complaints. You just heard those guys say that none of the people who live at the house were there, although they might have been lying, and they also said they didn't know their names, and again, they could have been lying. The defense may even say that Koberger attended a party there without the girls knowing him or that someone else could have planted his DNA on the snap of the leather sheath left on victim Maddie Mogan's bed to frame him for the crime. But why would someone decide to randomly frame Brian Koberger for this? And would that same person have arranged to have a white Hyundai Elantra drive around the neighborhood during the 4 a.m. to 5 a.m. hour on the day of the crime. Speaking of the DNA on the sheath, experts are saying that the defense is going to attack the DNA evidence from like 
every angle. Their goal is to get the DNA evidence declared inadmissible in court. Now, according to a criminal defense law firm named the Cone Law Firm, one of the most effective strategies for strengthening the defense and weakening the prosecutor's case can be to get evidence tossed out. With DNA, the defense can try to contend that, one, investigators didn't follow the proper procedures in collecting evidence, that they could have contaminated it by not wearing the proper gear. Two, that the chain of custody for the evidence was broken at some point. This is one I feel confident Koberger's defense team will try to use. We know the DNA evidence was initially sent to the Idaho State Lab for analyzing. When that lab was unsuccessful, the DNA was sent to an out-of-state lab. So how exactly was the DNA transferred from place to place? Was it ever out of the chain of custody, allowing someone to possibly tamper with it? Three, that the lab that analyzed the DNA evidence has a history of mishandling samples, misreading test results, and so on. And apparently, even if the previously mentioned arguments are not sufficient to get the evidence thrown out of court, they can be powerful enough to create reasonable doubt in the jurors' minds and weaken the prosecutor's case. But one trial expert interviewed by the New York Post about the Brian Koberger case said that even if the defense gets the DNA evidence tossed out of court, it still might not be enough to save Koberger from a guilty verdict. Court TV anchor Ted Rollins said, quote, DNA on itself, it's not everything. People can leave their DNA on items they've never touched and in rooms they've never been in. I think from the defense, you're going to see a huge attack on the DNA because if you can get rid of that, you have a chance. However, this isn't just DNA. It's DNA tied to the murder weapon, allegedly. Rollins also pointed out that there are many other things potentially tying Koberger to the crime, such as having that white Hyundai Elantra, which is the same type of vehicle, seen near the crime scene house shortly after the crime. He also mentioned the fact that Koberger had his cell phone off, which made it harder to pinpoint his exact location while the Moscow crime was taking place to give him an alibi. Rowland said, quote, he thought if he turned his phone off, he'd get away with it. End quote. I've noticed that in other cases, the perpetrators turned their cell phones off prior to the crime and then turned them back on maybe an hour later. This happened in the case of Dan Markell, who was done in by a guy hired by his brother-in-law, Charlie Adelson. The perpetrator and his driver both turned their phones off prior to the crime and then later turned them back on as they were heading home. This act of turning off one's cell phone seems to be incriminating in and of itself. I'm telling you, if I were a criminal, God forbid, I'd never survive for even one day in prison. I'd be like Goldie Hawn in that movie where she joins the army. Like, where's the nail salon? Where's the spa? You don't have those? Well, this is just unacceptable. Again, if I were a criminal, I'd leave my phone on and I'd leave it at home. Just saying. When he was asked why he thought that the K-bar sheath was left behind, Rowland said he believes it was a complete accident. He said, quote, I believe Maddie Mogan and Kaylee Gonsalves fought back and whoever was in there with the weapon, that's what the girls took. 
They grabbed it, and that's why it was there. I can't believe any other scenario that makes sense. Whoever did this, whether it be Koberger or somebody else, it's the last thing in the world, especially if it was Koberger, Mr. Criminology. It's the last thing in the world that that person would do would be to leave behind his DNA, end quote. I thoroughly agree. Rollins also believes that Koberger's studies will play a large role at trial. He said, quote, it paints the picture of the ultimate scary boogeyman, that there's no way to defend yourself off somebody that's analyzing, allegedly, the art of murder. That's basically what I think they're going to argue, that this guy researched this and followed through with it, end quote. Rollins theorized as well that if Koberger is the perpetrator, then he may have wanted to, quote, test the system and act out on whatever internal impulses he had. Rollins is quoted as saying, I think if he got away with this, that this would have been just the beginning, assuming he actually did this, end quote. It's a terrifying thought. This makes me wonder if court-appointed defense lawyers ever secretly believe that their client is guilty, and when they do, and they are aware of the potential dangers such a person poses to society if released, do they just try their best to give their client, say, a decent defense, but in their hearts, are they hopeful that the jurors will believe the prosecutor over them? I mean, if Koberger committed this stunningly violent crime, four people dead, and by the use of a sharp-edged object, most experts say such an offender would inevitably commit the same type of crime again. No one in their right mind would want to see such a criminal let out on the streets again. I definitely wonder what goes on in attorney Ann Taylor's mind, especially when Koberger was, at least that we know, of, unable to cough up a witness who could say that he or she saw him driving his Elantra in another location during that critical 30-minute period between 4 a.m. and 4.30 a.m. Remember, Koberger admitted that he was out driving his car during the period when the crime occurred. He said that he often goes for late-night drives or early-morning drives. So was Ann Taylor simply forced to repeat what her client told her, that he was out driving at that time, but he wasn't at the crime scene house, and unfortunately, he can't find anyone to verify that he was elsewhere. I don't care which side you're on, whether you think Koberger is guilty or not guilty, that alibi, you've got to admit that that is a weak alibi. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories.